My name is Sam. I'm the lead pastor here at Good News, and uh, we are uh, in the middle of a sermon series looking at the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we're going to be looking at a short but intense passage. We could uh, title this series, uh, or at least we could title this whole section of uh, Luke's Gospel, Spicy Jesus, or at least that's what I would uh, title this section because I get heartburn after reading it. But this is Luke chapter 17, 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any of you who have a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to, his, to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he does what's commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for this good and holy word, and we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you would give us clarity. We pray that we would not just let this be an accumulation of knowledge, but a change of life for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did you know that before Christianity was called Christianity, it actually had a, a different name? Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't know this. That actually, when you go back to the earliest chapters of the book of Acts, when they're talking about the church— Christians aren't called Christians yet. They are called the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Maybe when you're reading the book of Acts next time, you'll notice that sometimes actually the way is capitalized, recognizing that this was the title that Christians had even before they were called Christians. There's something actually pretty significant to that title, the way. What it communicated was that Christianity, that our faith was not meant to be static. That it was not meant to be something that you simply hear, that you simply see, that you simply think about. The faith that Christ calls us to is something that is meant to be lived out, which is why Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. We hear that as metaphor. Jesus says it, as reality. And he doesn't just call his church to follow him on this path. 
Sunday mornings, twice a month, maybe three times a month if we're having a good month. The call to walk this path of discipleship is a call 24-7. Now, last time we were together, Pastor Charlie was looking at a passage where Jesus had been interacting with the Pharisees. And now he turns his attention back to the disciples. And we're in the middle of a section of the book of Luke called the travel narratives. In the travel narratives, what we're recording is Jesus' movement sorry, towards Jerusalem. Not just because he was going on holiday there, but because he knew that he was going to the cross. And so throughout these travel narratives, what ends up happening is the intensity of Jesus ends up getting turned way, way up. And so last week he said to the Pharisees, you don't understand the law, you don't understand God. And now he turns to the disciples and he says, I want to tell you about the shape of your discipleship. I want to tell you about the way that I want you to follow me. The character, the consistency, the reality of what it looks like to be a disciple. It's especially noteworthy that if you're reading specifically, at one point in this passage, Luke no longer calls them the disciples, but he calls them the apostles. And that's significant in that Jesus recognizes, and Luke even in the recording recognizes, that these people were soon going to be sent out. So what is it going to look like for them to be sent out? What is it going to look like for them to be on the way? And what happens happens when they mess up? What happens when they slip? What happens when they get lost? What happens when they get confused? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, that's not a question that just mattered then, I think it, it's a question that matters today, too. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus? Well, I've got some really good news for you to start with. You ready? You are absolutely, most certainly, without a doubt, going to totally mess up. <laughs> At some point, You're going to think that you're doing the right thing, and you are totally going to flub. At some point, you're going to think that you're kicking the football, and you're going to swing in the air and land on your back. Everyone who follows Jesus is going to fail. It's going to happen. And yet, amazingly, Jesus knows this, and he doesn't expect flawless followers. And he starts his patches, and he almost runs right past that, and he says, look, there is going to be temptation to sin. Now, when we read that, we might think that he means there's going to be a possibility, a, a hypothetical. But if you look at many other versions of the way that that passage is translated, from the King James to the NIV, it's the reality of that that's going to happen. In fact, the way that the Greek is worded is it says, there are going to be rocks in your path. You are going to trip along the way. 
In fact, the real danger in Christianity is not that you mess up. The warning that we are given in Scripture is that you would lie and say that you never mess up. That's what John says in 1 John. He says, look, if we claim to be without sin, we're actually deceiving ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth's not in us, he says. It is really important for us to understand that Jesus here starts with a recognition that we are going to mess up. And yet, he, he calls us, and he invites us, and he tells the disciples, you're still going to follow me. See, Christians are, are going to fail. There are going to be things that we that we do, and, and the way that we can talk about it is this category called sin. Sin is, is both something you do and something you don't do, which can be confusing sometimes. So let me explain it. When the Bible talks about this idea of sin, it means that there are going to be some things that you are pursuing that you know that you should be avoiding, that you're going after the wrong thing in your life. Does that make sense? But it is also sin to know that there is a good thing that you should be pursuing and then avoid that thing. That both in the running after the wrong and ignoring the good, we fall into a pattern of what the Bible calls sin. But here's the good news. The good news. You ready? God came to save sinners. He didn't come to pick the perfect. He came to save sinners. In fact, that's why as a church we're here. We're here to let people know that there is hope for people who fall. People who are walking on the path they feel like, and, and they look up and they realize they're headed in entirely the wrong direction. That there is hope for people who, who stumble and fall into something that they wish they never stepped into, and now they feel like they're stuck in a quagmire. That's a funny word, isn't it? That's why actually God put us specifically here, not hypothetically, but in reality, to be good news in this community so that more people would know that there is hope for those who feel absolutely lost. And there is hope. Now, Jesus says all of that in that little line, temptation is sure to come, it's going to happen, you're going to mess up. And then he drops one of the most intense warnings that he says in the whole Bible. What does he say? He says, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Now, that seems pretty odd to us and maybe we can guess at it. But what he's saying is, look, there, 
there is forgiveness. There is grace. You are going to go the wrong way. And God will forgive you. But you should not be directing traffic down that way. And woe to you. I'm sorry for you. I weep for you if that's what you're doing. Now, how many of us have millstones at our house and use them on a weekly basis? Anybody? No? We, we probably don't recognize what a millstone is. A, a millstone would have been a, um, it would have been a, 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 a big heavy stone. Probably two of them would have been stacked on top of each other. In, in smaller communities, this would have been the way that you made flour. You would have poured your grain onto these two stones, and one stone would have had a hole at the top, and people would have spun it around. And as they spun it around, it would have ground the flour down, and so it would have looked like a big stone wheel, and it would have been immensely heavy. Imagine kind of something a little bit heavier than a cinder block, probably. Jesus says, if you want to lead people down the wrong path, the best thing for you to do right now is to take a swim with a cinder block around your neck. That's intense language. I mean, honestly, <laughs> the, the word that comes to mind when I hear Jesus say that is that is ruthless language. I mean, that cuts through all of it and pierces the heart. You might as well jump in the sea with an unfloaty tide around your neck. Why is he that harsh? Why would he be that intense? He's that intense because we don't need any help making the world more terrible. We don't need any help pulling the world farther apart. We don't need any help making the world more divisive, harder for anyone. And God knows the hardness of the world. He knows the painfulness of the world. And the idea that one of his people, the idea that one of his leaders would make things worse is something that he refuses to accept. He says, absolutely not. Now, we hear this, and he really is probably talking specifically to leaders in this passage. But he doesn't say that that means that leadership is then bad. Now, we're living in this cultural moment where nobody trusts institutions, do we? I mean, probably most of us would say, I would trust a used car salesman over my congressman. That's just kind of the, the place that we're living in. We don't trust the news. We don't trust political leaders. We, many of us, you know, get nervous when we see a police officer. Any leadership, any authority is pushed aside. We have seen too many terrible stories. We've seen too much evil perpetrated by people in the name of doing the right thing. And there is a temptation to say that means that all leadership is bad. 
and yet the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says, if you are pursuing leadership, you're pursuing a good thing. That many of us in varied ways in the world are called into leadership. And that's a good thing. That's a gift. But the warning is, do not point people in the wrong direction. Do not think that what you do with your leadership doesn't matter. Do not think that it's no big deal to lead people in the wrong direction. Because if you do, Jesus says, it would be better for you to tie a rock around your neck and jump in a lake. (laughs) Now, right on the heels of this, I mean, really, really heavy warning, Jesus goes back to grace. And he goes back to forgiveness. He says this. He says, pay attention to yourselves. But he continues, and if your brother, now he's talking about brothers and sisters, so if you're here and you're saying, well, then I don't have to forgive my sister, that's not what he's saying. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And then he continues, and he says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns to you seven times and says, I repent, then Jesus says to him, then you must forgive him. He is incredibly intense in a moment, but then he says to us, forgiveness matters. And if you know that you have been forgiven, then you cannot just be selfish about it. You cannot say, forgiveness for me, (laughs) but none for you. Forgiveness leads to forgiveness, which is really hard for us. We We want to hold on to it and say, I know that Christ forgives me, but you don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't know how they've treated me. And yet, Jesus says, if you've been forgiven, then you're going to be willing to forgive. That's what it means to follow him. Now, his disciples, the apostles, their response is is kind of funny. They just say this. Increase our faith. Whoa. Almost as if something awkward's happened and they don't know how to respond. And so they just kind of blurt something out, hoping to, like, change the subject. Jesus says, your call is to forgive. And they say, whoa, Jesus, that is too much. Give us more faith. But I, I, I think... Their, their interaction with that and their statement of that, Jesus sees right through it. And, and he, he tells this story. He tells this parable that, again, is kind of culturally far from us. He says, okay, he, he, so I'm going to give you a, like a cheat sheet before we get into the story, right? Mustard seeds were considered really tiny, like a drop. And mulberry trees 
were seen as the most persistent tree, period. There were rabbis who said that a mulberry tree's roots could last 500 years. You weren't digging that thing out. Talk about having that in your garden, right? Nobody wants that. And the sea, the sea always represented to God's people and to, honestly, most people throughout the history of the world, a place that we could not control. And so they say to Jesus, whoa, Jesus, we need more faith to forgive people like that. And he says, you don't need more faith. If you had a drop of faith, a drop of faith, you could command the most stubborn tree to pick itself up and crawl into the ocean and it would stay there. You don't need more faith. It's not a quantity problem, guys. See, sometimes we misunderstand faith. We think faith is almost like this, you know, kind of gas that we pour into the car of our life. And if we know that we're going on a really long journey, well, then I just need more gas. I need more faith. And we try to fill up the tank a little bit more and a little bit more. And if God says, well, you have a really long journey, and we say, well, the tank's only a little bit full, God, I'm not going to make it there. That is not the way that God talks about faith. When he's talking about faith here, he's saying that faith is not some quantity that you put in yourself. It's not that you need to have more trust in more faith. But faith is what connects you to God. And God doesn't run dry. See, it's not about the quantity of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. He says, you need faith in God that you can do this. Now, he continues, and, it, and it's almost like he knows what we're thinking. He, he continues by jumping into this uh, story, this, this parable, this, this hypothetical. And he says, okay, look, faith is good, but when you say you need more faith, you don't need more faith. Well, then what do they need? Jesus says they need more grit. They need more tenacity. He says it's not that you need more faith. You have to do the work. He says, okay, let's think of all of you who have farms and servants, which is, again, culturally, none of us, and so it just kind of feels odd. But he says, if you were somebody who had servants on your farm, and they were working, he says, either plowing fields or working with sheep, you would never say to them, just come in and have dinner with me. The same way that you wouldn't invite your kids to take their soccer cleats off and put them on the dining room table. You just wouldn't do that. Now, I am, I am not an expert in, uh, in ancient farming practices, though I would admit, and my wife would tease me about it, that it is definitely one of my hobbies. And so I, I, I've actually plowed a field with uh, a draft animal before, and I can tell you it is a really, really messy thing. 
It is messier than letting kindergartners bake a chocolate cake. Imagine a chocolate cake that is an acre large, and some of the ingredients are, human, are, are, are animal manure. It's going to be a mess. In fact, in fact, maybe you've heard people use the phrase, it's kind of this old insult that people used to call people clod hoppers, basically meaning somebody who is dumb and poor, you're just a dumb clod hopper. That was an insult about the fact that when you plowed, you would be covered in these big chunks of earth that would stick to you so that you could walk in and you could be six or seven inches taller simply because of the mud that was stuck to you. He says, would any of you have somebody come right in from plowing and sit down at dinner? No. Now, when we owned a farm, we did not have sheep, but we had friends that owned sheep. And I can tell you this. I'll go country for a second. They are nasty, y'all. Sheep are the grossest farm animal, hands down. Which is, when you realize that Jesus calls us sheep, it's not a cute thing. It's kind of like a burn that you don't realize that he's doing now. You would never, ever say, like, say to someone, hey, I want you to help me cook a meal. And they say, sure, and do me a favor. Would you roll around in the grass where the goose just got up, where all those geese just got up, and then come right in and cook the meal for me? You would never, ever say that. So Jesus says, you would never do that, would you? No. No, you would say what? You would say, clean up and then keep serving. Clean up and keep serving. See, now here's the thing, because in this passage, Jesus has talked about grace and grace and grace. And sometimes, though, grace can end up leading to passivity. Jesus doesn't allow grace to lead to passivity here. He says, God has forgiven you of a lot. In fact, God will forgive you a hundred times. He'll forgive you a thousand times. He'll forgive you more than that. Every time that you repent, he will forgive you. But there's never going to come a point where you come back and, you, and say, God, I need you to forgive me. And he says, I forgive you. But you know what? This whole follow me thing, it's probably just too much for you. So I got you a chair and I just need you to sit here. He doesn't say that. He forgives us, and then he says, follow me. He calls us to the work of obedience. He calls us to the work of being servants. Now, honestly, in our culture, that's hard. Because all of us would say that we're busy. All of us would say that we have full lives. Though most of us, if we actually audit our life, we would all be complaining that we never get enough done. And so, there is this idol, there is this dream, there is this hope of me time, of leisure, of comfort, that hopefully we will be able to just stop and sometimes we incorporate that desire into Christianity. And we say, no, no, 
Isn't that what Christianity is about? That we just, I don't have to do anything now? I've been forgiven. I've been offered grace. I can just sit down. Jesus got me a chair, didn't he? No, he didn't. In fact, the the only two places that people seem to be headed in this passage, are you ready for this? The bottom of a lake or in the kitchen to help. Those seem to be the two options presented in this passage. He calls us to grit, to tenacity, to give ourselves to something that is more than just filling our schedule and having nothing done. Now, here's the thing as we hear this. We tend to lean one way or we tend to lean the other. And so there are some of you here, and the first thing that you need to take hold of is grace. Maybe you're not sure what to do with Jesus. Maybe you're just kind of processing Christianity still. The first thing that you need to understand is that you have been forgiven. And that regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of the stuff that you're struggling with, regardless of how many times you feel like you keep falling and falling and falling, there is grace and there is mercy with Jesus. You need that. And there are probably some of you, and you need to understand that it's not just that it's grace for you, but it's grace for everybody else too. That you can't hold on to forgiveness for yourself and then hold up law for everybody around you. There are some of you that need to hold on to grace. But there are some of you who are saying, yeah, they do. I can think of the person that you're talking about, Sam. I know exactly who you're talking about. That person needs to understand grace. And you understand grace. You say, oh, I know that I need grace, and I know that grace is given to me. And what you need to recognize is that God's grace is not an invitation for you to then do nothing. You know that you need grace, but you seem to be ignoring the fact that he has called you to obedience and he has equipped you to actually walk in that obedience. And so some of us, we need to figure out grace. Some of us need to figure out grit. And honestly, though, what we need is is both held together. It is too rare and too precious to find people that can hold the grace of God and the grit to obey God together. And yet that is what our culture so desperately needs. It does not need more joyless rule followers. It also doesn't need more joyful do-nothings. What our world needs are people who are relentlessly, tenaciously devoted to a purpose greater than themselves, who are servants in the best version of what it means to be a servant. 
and who are infinitely tender in the character of their devotion. Imagine if we as a church held those two things together. Imagine if we held together the grace that forgives seven times in a day, a million times in a day. And the grit that Jesus says, you've been called as servants to serve the kingdom of God. That's what is needed. And that is exactly what Jesus invites us to. He invites us to a life marked by grit and grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. We need your care. There are some of us that need to slow down, and there are some of us that need to speed up. And for all of us, we need to hold on to you and know how important it is to follow you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you prepared the way. We thank you that you went to the cross. We thank you that you prepared the church, that you equipped the church, that you established us, that you enabled us to live with your purpose, with your meaning, that you call us to something good and beautiful and that we're going to mess it up a million times and yet you're going to forgive us a million times and you're going to invite us tomorrow to follow you. So help us to understand what that looks like. Help us to figure out the next step that we each need to take and help us to be a community, a family made up of people of grit and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.